the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. Hello, Justin. Hi, everybody. Hey, Lindsay. So we've had a pretty good run here. Uh, We had an exciting October with a lot of uh, 40th anniversary movies, followed by the 40th anniversary (laughs) of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it just seemed like, you know, this is going to be our last episode for the year. It seemed appropriate that we go out with a bang. So we decided to do one of the most beloved movies of all time, I think, uh, could be yeah. said fairly, and that's the Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank doesn't seem to really come up that much, yet when you bring it up in a conversation with someone, they're like, oh yeah, I know that movie. I think I cry through the last 20 minutes of it, or it's just so emotional, or it really profoundly affected me in a deep way. Yeah, I've watched this movie about four times in the last uh, several weeks, and it really can be kind of punishing for the audience there is a hopefulness to it and I do kind of understand why this movie is so beloved and why it it takes you to the depths of despair but then it brings you up to the highest high and we'll kind of talk about some of this later on especially the ending where this movie I think it's such an audience pleasing movie and I think it could be criticized to almost a fault But for me, it gives me everything that I want. And this is a movie that I think is highly rewatchable. Again, even though there's so many very like traumatic images (laughs) and and brutality throughout the movie, um, it just never gets old to me. Before we decided to do this, I think I told you that I was getting ready to take the dogs out for a walk and it just happened to be on TV, which still, you know. 30 years later, seems like it happens all the time. It's still on TBS or TNT. But I I had to watch the last half hour, commercials and all. I was annoyed that the commercials were happening, but I just couldn't leave, even though I know what happens. I had to watch the ending. And for this being a prison movie, to say that it is uplifting and it's, I mean, prison movie's not going to draw people in, in to see it in the theater, but... This one is a whole different game. A lot of things to talk about with the Shawshank Redemption. We're definitely going to get into a lot of the behind the scenes, uh, the story about how this movie came to be, how it was adapted from a short story by Stephen King, and as well as get into one of our favorite topics, and that's talking about the cast. And this movie is definitely uh, the kind of movie that we uh, truly love to get into because it's somewhat of an ensemble piece with some great uh, lead starring roles as well as the style, tone, the manner in which the story is told. And I can't wait to talk about the ending and how uh, it makes both of us, you know, how, I, I kind of want to know how you feel at the end of this, Justin. I, if you've listened to this podcast, you know I'm, I'm a sad sack and you can probably get me to cry at, you know, an Adam Sandler movie, really. But this one has me in a heap and I, I, I want to know how you feel about it. And that goes right along with the themes and emotions and everything that goes along with this film. So we're going to be cutting to the core for this one, I think. And uh, after our Shawshank talk, we will get into our picks of the week. This was a tough one for me. There were so many uh, 
ways to connect uh, another movie to Shawshank Redemption, either via actor or director. And um, I chose a Morgan Freeman movie, uh, which also had a very sort of uplifting spirit that deals with some very uh, uh, desperate measures and despair. And that's uh, Lean on Me. That's a great pick. Not seen that since I was a kid, and I can't wait to hear about it. And what was your pick? I went with a Tim Robbins movie from 92. A lot of folks knew him from this film, but I don't think it was what he was best known from before the Shawshank Redemption, and that was Robert Altman's The Player. I'm so happy you're doing an Altman movie. After our picks, as always, we'll be getting into our Murray moments. You know, we've been going three years strong on this thing, and I still never know what Lindsay's going to say. I hear the Murray moment, uh, just like you listeners, um, fresh to my ears. I I don't know what she's going to do, what she's going to pull out of her hat, and uh, I'm always impressed with the uh, depths of research that you go to to find ways to tie Bill Murray to whatever (laughs) our future movie is, especially when it's one that he has, like, almost zero association with cast or crew or a director. Yeah. And, you know, if I knew the guy, he could probably tell me a billion connections to each one of these movies somehow or have some story. But, you know, until that day, we're we're doing it this way. Well, before we get into our first clip from The Shawshank Redemption, Lindsay, can you give us your brief interpretation of what this movie's about? I would love to. On the surface, this is a prison story which begins in the late 1940s and spans upwards of 20 years and primarily centers around two inmates who become friends, Andy and Red. In prison, everyone says they're innocent, with a wink and a smile, but Andy actually is. Yet he resigns himself to live out two consecutive life sentences for the murder of his wife and lover. Through trying to physically and mentally survive the harsh life that is imprisonment, We learn about this world through the voice of Red, our narrator, and how he and all of the other prisoners are inspired by Andy's ability to adapt and survive mental and physical brutality every day. Everyone has their secrets, and Red's observations lead us through it all, but Andy's hiding a whopper of a secret, even from Red, and it truly shows the inmates to not ever give up hope. Hope is a dangerous thing, Lindsay. Are you going to, like, smash down your lunch tray and leave the room? Smash the keyboard and walk out. Just like leave, leave the studio. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that. I do have about a month's worth of uh, stubble on my face too. I kind of look a little bit like Tim Robbins right now. You spent a week in the hole to write that uh, summary on Trashing. I smell like Tim Robbins. He's been a week in the hole for sure. Well, let's go to a clip from Shawshank Redemption. We'll be back. We'll talk about it. It's Mr. Hadley. He's captain of the guards. I'm Mr. Norton, the warden. You are convicted felons. That's why they've sent you to me. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. The other rules, you'll figure out as you go along. Any questions? When do we eat? You eat when we say you eat. You shit when we say you shit, and you piss when we say you piss. You got that, you maggot dick motherfucker? (laughs) On your feet. I believe in two things. Discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. So before we get into Shawshank Redemption itself, I wanted to go back in time just a little bit um, to talk about uh, writer-director Frank Darabont. 
this was really uh, his baby. Like it was a movie that he wanted to make for some time. He had a long-standing relationship with writer Stephen King, who was the original writer of the short story Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which Frank Darabont adapted. Now we've done so many movies, talked about so many different directors on this podcast, and Frank Darabont is one of the few directors that I feel like we can say started from the very, very bottom. He originally started as a production assistant, which usually you don't hear that story of, you know, the PA going all the way up the ranks to director. But that's where he started. He started in 1980 on a very um, somewhat forgettable horror film with Linda Blair called Hell Night. Some people think it's forgettable, but uh, I think you and I are two of those people. (laughs) I was going to say, you don't think it's forgettable. No, I've seen that movie pop up on, uh, you know, like Halloween movies you must see. And I'm like, really? Yeah, it was one I couldn't get into, but then... um, didn't seem like Frank Darabont thought too much of it either in interviews I've heard from him. But he started out as a PA. He worked on a few sort of very low-budget horror movies, eventually working his way up to, to the art department. And he was a set dresser on one of Lindsay's favorites, Crimes of Passion. Love that movie so much. But he had this you know, burning desire to be a writer-director. Well, when he was a production assistant on... Hell Night, there was a production manager there that he absolutely hated um, (laughs) by the name of Chuck Russell, who we've talked about before on this podcast. And though their relationship started rocky, they eventually became very good friends because they both realized that they had a passion to write and direct, and they didn't want to just be crewing on some of these movies. And once they, that friendship ignited, you know, they started working on stuff together, working on pieces, showing each other's work. And so Frank Darabont wanted to try his hand at at least making a film on his own as a writer-director. He decided the best thing to do would be uh, a short film. And at the time, this was the early 80s, Stephen King had become a household name as a horror writer. By the mid-80s, so many of his novels had been adapted into Hollywood movies, some fairly decent, most of them not very good. And Stephen King felt like he wasn't really known as like a writer outside of the horror genre. And so he was writing a lot of non-horror short stories, and he eventually put out a novella in 1982 called Different Seasons, which had four short stories in it, none of them really based in horror, one of which was called The Body, which we talked about that was eventually um, adapted into the movie Stand By Me by Rob Reiner. But it was around this time that Stephen King decided that he would make a deal with film students, uh, which I think this was really, really cool that he did. He put the word out that if you were a film student and you wanted to adapt one of his short stories, not one of his novels, but one of his short stories, most of which were not horror-based, you could get the permission, the rights to make the movie for $1. And uh, the only stipulation was is that he would retain the rights to the story, to whatever you made, and you couldn't use it for a commercial gain, but you know, you were able to make a movie put it in festivals, you know, hopefully cut your teeth on something that, you know, adapting something that was already written. And Frank Darabont took that to heart. And there was a, there was a short story that Stephen King wrote called The Woman in the Room. Darabont adapted that on his own, made it a short film, uh, eventually got that short film to Stephen King. Stephen King thought it was like 
absolutely wonderful. And Darabont said, one day I really want to make a movie, a feature-length movie, to read a Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which uh, Stephen King thought, well, that's not a movie that, you know, is adaptable. He just didn't think it was something that, that had a lot of elements that would that would play well as a movie. But nonetheless, you know, he was like, that's great. You know, if, you, if, that, if that happens, you know, contact me. We'll talk about it. And Darabont was pretty happy with The Woman in the Room. But again, it was a short film and a short film doesn't necessarily get you too much. You know, he was still perfecting his craft as a writer. To get back to Chuck Russell, him and Russell are now roommates. And he said one day Russell comes bursting into the apartment and is all excited. And he said, I just came back from a meeting and somehow I convinced them that uh, we could redo the new Freddy script. And Chuck Russell said, you know, they're going to give me a shot at directing this thing if I can come up with a new script in three weeks. Now, this was a script that uh, Wes Craven had already worked on, but there was a lot of elements that didn't work. And so there was sort of uh, Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont were racing the clock. If we can bang out a, a rewrite of this script and make it something that's filmable. So Darabont and Chuck Russell locked themselves up in a room for three weeks and just pounded out the revisions to Nightmare on Elm Street and came up with something that the studio approved. And next thing they knew, Chuck Russell was on set directing his first film, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. And one of my personal favorites in the uh, franchise. Dream Warriors is one of my favorites too. But these two guys went on to do another personal favorite of mine, The Blob, which was a script that they had already been writing at the time that Nightmare 3 came to them. They weren't completely done with it, but kind of put a pause on that. Went to Nightmare 3 banged that one out and then we're ready to just the next year move on to the blob and so for a pair of writers who were reworking scripts and movies that were going to pretty much guarantee butts in the seats in theaters these guys were pretty hot and I can imagine Darabont feeling like okay I'm cutting my teeth pretty well on this writing gig I'm really good at rewriting scripts or making things better and so this was when he decided to revisit the idea of doing another Stephen King story. Now, like we said, he had already done his short story of the woman in the room, but the love that Darabont had for Stephen King goes back to high school. Like he fell in love with The Shining when he accidentally discovered it. He just really fell in love with Stephen King's writing. So after Dream Warriors, Darabont's feeling really good. He goes to Stephen King and says, I want to do the short story, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And King kind of is a little puzzled by it and is thinking, okay, great, but I just don't see that one becoming a movie. But you know what? I like what you did before. Let's go ahead and do it. And this time it's not for a dollar. It's for $5,000. And I love this story. I mean, because, you know, Stephen King needs $5,000 at this point in his life. Sure. Darabont pays him the five grand and Stephen King never cashes it. And instead, years later, uh, has the check framed and sends it back to Darabont and says, here, just in case you need some bail money sometime. Like, what a cute story. The fact that Stephen King was so generous with so many writers, including Darabont, to offer up his stories, I just, I just can't think of... Was Is there another writer that I don't know about, I don't know, that has done something like this? Because it just seems so amazing. You give these people a great setup and a great story and you know they have the chance to make their career and that's what Darabont did now he didn't immediately start on Shawshank Redemption it wouldn't be until five years later when he actually sat down ignored the rest of the world told his agent 
hey, leave me alone for a little while. I want to bang out this script. And that's what he did for eight weeks. He sat down and he adapted Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption to be the movie that we know today. And in those five years between Darabont making an agreement with Stephen King to get the rights to the Shawshank Redemption and sitting down to adapt it into a screenplay, he knew that he needed to really at least get one feature film under his belt. He didn't want to go walk into a studio and say, hey, I want to make this movie. I've never made a feature film before. So he was able to work out a deal with USA to do one of their made-for-TV movies. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched any of these uh, USA low-budget TV movies. I grew up on them. Yeah, a lot of them can be pretty rough. Usually there's some sort of like sex pot, double cross type stories. Um, If you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. There's some pretty bad ones. Sometimes some of them are so bad they're uh, good. Yes. Is that what you're trying to yes, say? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. very entertaining. <laughs> but Darabont was able to get a directing gig, directing one that was not of his own work. It was a pre-written script. He was going to have to shoot it very fast, but he was fortunate to get uh, two pretty decent actors in the lead: Jennifer Jason Lee and Tim Matheson. And so he went to work making Buried Alive, which is a movie that I don't think most people know that he did before Shawshank Redemption. I certainly did not, but I did catch it. Last week, I sat down and watched Buried Alive. And I'll be honest, uh, there's not a lot in that movie that I saw that would lead me to believe that this was the guy who was going to go on to make such a phenomenal movie like Shawshank Redemption. But then again, you know, he wasn't working from the greatest script and a very low budget. And I think it was like somewhat successful with the USA Network. And then it also allowed him to have something on his resume that he did actually complete a feature film from start to finish with some name actors and that uh, he was competent to at least know that uh, he would be able to direct a, a full movie if a studio would give him a shot. And there was a studio that would give him a shot. The first and only studio that Frank Darabont thought would go with someone who was, you know, not necessarily green, but he had experience under his belt. But the studio that built itself on Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, which was another Stephen King adaptation from the same Different Seasons compilation, which included Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So with this completed screenplay adaptation, Frank Darabont goes immediately to Castle Rock. And after two weeks of thinking about it, Castle Rock goes ahead and greenlights the project. The funny thing is, though, and this is not surprising at all, Rob Reiner speaks up and is like, hey, how about I throw you a couple million and you let me direct this project? And while Darabont could have used that couple million to go on to a next project, write his next film, it just wasn't in the cards. He felt so close to Shawshank that a deal like this sure would make sense to have Rob Reiner do it but he felt like he was the closest to this. And also, you know, Rob Reiner had read the same Stephen King compilation. You know, if he thought that there was a movie in this, maybe he should have got it before. But Darabont went ahead with it. And I read, too, that Castle Rock could have bought it out from underneath him or something. Like, they could have pushed ahead and taken it from him. Um, I'm not sure the legality of that, but I, I remember reading that somewhere and they decided not to. And instead, Rob Reiner relented and said, OK, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and do this with Castle Rock. And, you know, we'll get to the casting in this movie because there were so many people considered for the parts of Red and Andy. But uh, I thought the most interesting was is when Rob Reiner uh, was real hot about directing this movie before he agreed to let Darabont take over directing duties. He had just come off of doing 
A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. And at this point, Rob Reiner had adapted two Stephen King movies, uh, Stand By Me and Misery, and really had like a string of hits. So it made sense for him to make the movie, but it was interesting to find out that he wanted to do the movie with uh, Tom Cruise as Andy and Harrison Ford is red. And I really had to think about that for a minute. And I thought that actually would make a pretty good movie. I mean, I love the way Shawshank turned out, but with Rob Reiner directing and those two actors in those roles, I think it would actually would have been a lot more successful at the box office than it did as it, as it stands, but probably wouldn't have the longevity and the way it's like aged so well over the years. But anyway, once Darabont is giving the okay to push forward with Shawshank Redemption, there was the task of finding a prison that they could use. And that prison was the Ohio State Reformatory, which had been shut down for several years in Mansfield, Ohio. Now, when they got there, um, there was a standing prison that they were able to use parts of the prison. It was pretty trash, so they had to go in and clean it up. But then there were several other uh, locations that they used to basically recreate the holding cells where there were like 200 cells. Like That was all done by uh, production designers, and they basically, from scratch, built a 200-man uh, prison cell that where the doors could open on an airlock and everybody comes out and kind of marches in formation. And in a few interviews, Darabont said he was actually pretty bummed out that the uh, production designers were not given more credit because he said that they did such a fine job that a lot of people thought that they just showed up and that there was a prison cell that looked the way it did and they just kind of rolled their cameras on that. And he said it was as far from the truth as possible. And they were also able to find another place in Ohio, like a, a building where they were where they were able to build the prison uh, laundry room, which uh, several scenes take place. So the whole uh, cast and crew was kind of camped out in Mansfield, Ohio, for many, many months during production. They were also able to do some local casting there. On the Shawshank DVD, there's this funny little news blurb of the whole town, like, really, really excited about it. You know, we've done other movies where uh, where Hollywood's descended on the small town to different feelings. Some people are angry about it, but um, sounds like uh, the whole town was like pretty ecstatic and a lot of people wanted to be in the movie. And so there's uh, tons of people that they have in the background and even a few people with speaking lines that were just uh, local casting in that town, people who had never even acted before. And Darabont was pretty happy about that. It gave it more of an authentic feel. I don't like prison movies as much as I used to, but um, I think what I always loved about prison movies is it's a realistic world, but it's a world that's kind of scary, and you hope that you never um, live that life, but it's utterly fascinating to basically get a tour of what someone has to go through, and you know you get to watch it from the safety of your living room couch. You certainly feel the length of... I mean, not, not saying that this movie is long in the tooth, it's not, but the way that people are slightly aged throughout these 20 years that you're with these inmates and what they go through. The feeling throughout all of this film makes you really feel like you've gone on this journey with them. And in addition to that, we write out the whole movie with Morgan Freeman as Red and his narration or his interpretation of his experience and what kind of each inmate as specifically Andy, who he has a particular fondness for, is going through. And I think without Red's narration, it would be a completely different movie. I don't even know if it would be as engaging and as hopeful or share as much uh, 
sentimental value with the viewer if we didn't have that character of Red and and his narration, just outside observation. And as much credit as Frank Darabont deserves for directing such a phenomenal movie, I think he deserves more credit for his adaptation skills. I was able to read the original short story, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and it is a very incredible short story, but Frank Darabont really did a fantastic job of not only taking that narration that Morgan Freeman does, which really makes the movie, um, the character of Red, uh, who is a white Irish guy in the book, he's telling you the story of Andy and of Shawshank in a much more kind of uh, old-timey, tall-tale way. Yeah. <laughs> um, even the way he talks is a little bit different. It doesn't have the dignity in the sort of humane tone that Morgan Freeman gives. Right away, Frank Darabont knew that Morgan Freeman had that gravitas to his voice, and he really wanted that to be a big part of the movie. So um, when they were in Ohio, uh, Frank Darabont had, uh, they went into a small local studio and they had um, Morgan Freeman kind of crank out that dialogue in about 45 minutes to an hour so that they could play it over loudspeakers through certain scenes. Darabont was really fond of the movie Goodfellas by Martin Scorsese. And so he used that as sort of a guide of playing, you know, we're going to play this narration over the scene and so that kind of times out right. And so the actors, everything falls into place. So that way, also when they went to do editing, they knew that the narration would fall into place much easier without having to cut corners. Darabont said that Morgan Freeman did such a fantastic job. He kind of knocked the whole thing out in like one take, like one sitting. And unfortunately, though, the recording uh, was done in a small studio and apparently either the mic was bad or there was a bad connection, but there was this really, really bad hiss. The editor and the sound mixer just said, you know, there, there's really nothing I can do about this. We can't have a hiss on this narration track. It's through the whole movie. So unfortunately, they had to re-record uh, Morgan Freeman's narration, but at this point, Freeman was done with the movie. You know, it was he was probably already working on other projects. He probably hadn't read the script in a long time, and uh, what took him one day to record um, the first time around ended up taking him about three weeks to knock out the narration that second time around. But apparently, he was a good sport about it and made sure that they got it right and. His narration does to me, uh, outside of Goodfellas, I think this is one of the other few movies, and Stand By Me as well, which narration, I think, works as a great tool to help tell the story, but doesn't feel like it's just saying what's happening on the screen. It gives you a little bit more depth to the character. If the movie had been adapted and they had a character talk more in the way of the tone that Stephen King had used in the book, it really wouldn't have come off as well one specific part to me especially is when Morgan Freeman says you know I don't think I'm going to make it on the outside and here I'm a guy that can get you things outside all you need is yellow pages but in the in the book he says in here I am the fucking yellow pages kind of almost like something that would be in like a Tarantino movie and Frank Darabont went in and he like really really tones down the way that uh, the red character spoke and made him seem like a little like older and wiser and really allowed the audience to come in and and really you get a more intimate view into their daily lives in this prison. Yeah, the character of Red in the book, I found to be because I, I hadn't read it before seeing the movie. He's so judgmental and I, I don't like him as much as, as Morgan Freeman. It doesn't have to do with just the tone of Morgan Freeman's voice or something like that. It's really just that characters 
I mean, he's the same, but he's just like, I don't know. Yeah, judgmental and not as grandpa caring like that Morgan Freeman's red character is. Now, there's certainly still a lot of character development. The tone of the entire story is still very evident from the novella to the screenplay. Another thing that's a huge difference is that there is plenty of subtext um, in the film. And in the novella, sometimes that is played out a lot more. And I like that the film just kind of lets the viewer experience it like red is experiencing this story happen and lets the subtext just happen versus giving you uh, vivid visuals that don't really match the overall tone of what Darabont's screenplay ended up being. And I think one of the best things that Darabont did in adapting the screenplay was uh, the warden norton that's in the oh yeah in the movie uh in the novella there's multiple wardens over the years that red talks about the pass through shawshank and norton ends up being one of the last few wardens but darabont said you know we need one main villain to focus on through the yeah. whole movie we can't have these like changing of wardens so he had norton be the warden throughout the whole movie which i think is one of the best yeah parts about the book because he is such a villain. I he mean, sucks. Uh, Darabont really did such a great job of adapting the warden and the character of of Hadley, the the main uh, guard, and having these guys be these sort of like very evil characters, so that that way, not only are you as an audience member going to feel sympathy for Andy, but you're also going to feel sort of like so much more vindicated as an audience by watching them get theirs near the end of the film. And before we go on to that ending, because there is a major difference between the novella and the screenplay adaptation, we should talk about the main themes and what does this movie mean to a viewer watching it. It's a very inspirational film. Some people put their own certain religious ideologies and whatnot to this film. And while I get that, I think that there are certain aspects of this film which are universal and why it's able to tap into the hearts of so many people. The two main ideas being friendship and hope. And friendship, we've certainly seen that in other films. Hope can sometimes sound pretty cheesy when you're talking about it in the context of watching a film. But the two main things with this one, specifically friendship, we never see stories about two guys that don't have any action between them. It isn't just like a, a buddy cop film. This is really just like two guys that have spent 20 horrible years together are as close as a romantic relationship or brothers but are, are neither. And there's nothing like this relationship that, that could be emulated anywhere else in life. And so rarely do we see something like this on screen. And this is often described as a feel-good movie. And, you know, I was thinking about it like... <laughs> feel-good prison movie. <laughs> and, well, and really, too, it's, it's funny. It's kind of laughable. And at first I was like, I don't really know if I call this a feel-good movie. Um, but after watching it multiple times, it really is because... It's a movie like if you're not if you're if you're in a rough spot in your life, generally you don't want to watch like movies that are real depressing, but somehow this movie works because no matter how bad things are going, you didn't get accused of uh killing your wife when you're innocent <laughs> and then you go to like the worst prison in the world for like most of your life and then uh you know escape by some insane means. So I think this is a good movie to watch when you're down because you're like, God, at least I'm not going through what Andy Dufresne went through. Things aren't as bad. But then it gives you this hopeful 
ending and also this idea of hope is something that we have to have. It's something that keeps us going. And there's a lot of psychology to Shawshank. There's a lot of psychology to prison. You know, that's part of what they do to these prisoners is they break them down, like being in solitary confinement, being, uh, you know, separating us from each other. I mean, there's so many relatable things in this of like us as a society, uh, just going through what we've been going through the last, you know, two years of like being separated, not being able to be these social creatures. A lot of themes of friendship in here, but there's also, I think, a commentary on the elderly in prison, you know, we've got this character Brooks and we'll talk about the cast here in a minute, but like how prison is supposed to reform people, but does it really do that? Does it really suck you of your good years, you know, where you can be a functioning part of society? And though some prisoners, of course, maybe they're kept away and they're protecting society, but when you're released, you know, I just sometimes have fears of like, God, you know, going into the workforce, you know, working into my 60s or 70s and being like an old guy on the job. I can't imagine like being stuck in prison for 40 years. And then you get out and you're in a world that's completely foreign, which uh, Shawshank does a good job of really emphasizing that and showing it. So I think there's a lot of elements in this movie that are wrapped up into one where we got a feel good story. It's an excellent story of friendship, but it also is a commentary on I think prisoners and how they have a hard time acclimating to society because they become institutionalized, as Red says, uh, you know, early in the movie. It's very raw in that way. And the way that it breaks it down, I think by having such hardcore villains in this film, it makes the idea of defiance can mean freedom in some ways, it makes you feel really like you're siding with the prisoners in this film and you empathize with people in it, even though most of them are probably guilty. But it does make you feel that emotion and puts you into that setting of what would I do if that were me? But thank God I'm not. I'm not that guy stuck in there. But ultimately, this movie is about finding a, a way to survive the simple goals in life, what we do to feel alive, to keep ourselves from losing every bit of, of dignity that we once had and try to retain who we are while, I mean, as, as cheesy as it sounds, overcoming adversity. But there are so many of us that deal with that on our, on our daily life. And I think unless you have a heart of stone, this movie <laughs> is going to get to you emotionally. And I find it interesting, you know, like this is a crowd pleaser. I mean, we didn't say this in the beginning, but, you know, if you go to imdb.com. This is the number one rated movie by audiences. It's interesting to me because this is a has such universal appeal because it's mostly a movie about two men. I mean, there's mm -hmm. like, I think there's like one woman in the movie for like 25 seconds, you know, and the woman that's killed Andy's wife. Well, and the woman that uh, tells uh, Brooks he's needs a oh. double bag of groceries because he's <laughs> he's like ancient and he's like not doing it good enough. And he's just she's like just scolding him. Both women in this are not great. No. So it's amazing to me that this movie has universal appeal for men and women. And I think, again, it, because it touches on these ideas of hope and these ideas of trying to overcome something, trying to deal with, trying to problem solve, and also trying to make the most of your situation, knowing that, like, you know, if you can get your mind right, you know, I mean, you can overcome a lot of things. And also, too, how important friendship is. You know, I mean, we I think we've talked about this on several movies with themes where, you know, sometimes friends can be closer to you than your own family. 
and that bond of friendship can be so strong. And I think this movie touches on something that's pretty unique in movies because usually we don't see movies of of male friendship like this. There's no machoism in this, you know what I mean? And which I find very refreshing because you would think in a prison film, it would only be about machoism. And in other prison movies, it is, you know, it's everybody putting on a front and the relationship that Andy and Red have is, uh, you know, they love each other. They love each other to the core. They lean on each other and they have these very, um, profound conversations and they have a very profound friendship. And I think that's what makes the movie and the structure of the movie so well, because you actually feel like you've, you've spent this time with them and you want them to be together. I mean, the end of this movie, um, would be terrible if you didn't see these two together. I mean, to me, it's like in some ways, like a, like a, a romantic comedy where, you know, you want to see the, the person chase them down and stop them from the train and say, no, we need to be together. We can't, live apart. And though there's not a romantic element to this movie, but I think that bond, that certain level of the audience wanting these two characters to be together because they should be together. They work so well together. They're a perfect match. And man, that ending, if you can believe it, that was not the ending to the Stephen King story. It ended with Red on the bus, like being released from prison. What's next in life? But maybe he met Andy. Maybe he didn't. Yeah, he's on his way to see Andy in the book, but he ends with that one line, I hope. You know, I hope I see my friend, I hope. And then that's the the book ends. And that was the ending that Darabont wanted. He showed his version of Shawshank to Castle Rock, and one of the producers, Liz Goltzer, said, this is wonderful, but after all of this time, don't you think that we as an audience deserve to see Andy and Red meeting? They have to meet. We can't have it just and open-ended like this, like the story does. Darabont thought that, that it was a little patronizing, that we don't need to see this, that we don't need to just hand that to the audience, it's a little cutesy, but agreed to shoot it, and and Goltzer, and everyone at Castle Rock was so open to Darabont having final say and everything. She said, please shoot it, see how you feel afterwards, but in the end, we're not going to force your hand on anything you have final cut. And I, you know, and I, and I, I think I understand, I can understand him thinking, you know, I'm pandering to the audience, like, why can't, you know, we leave this a little open-ended, but most movies don't take you through the journey that Shawshank <laughs> yeah. does. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the, the audience is punished quite a bit, you know, and you want to see Red, uh, see Andy. And I do think that they did a tasteful job. I love the ending of this. I, I'm glad that they shot the beach ending, but I am glad that they just had, you just see the smile. It's a real, real wide, faraway shot. You see Andy on his boat and you see them come over and brace. And then we see the end credits. You know, I think pandering would have been like they're having a beer or something on their boat talking about, you know, whatever, whatever. We don't need to see that. All we need to know is these two are reunited again and that's all we need. And then we're out. And I think it was a great ending. Really, really one of the more satisfying endings to me of any movie that I've seen. Um, and I, I do have to say, yeah. I think it's very like a funny coincidence or maybe like I, ironic that uh, one year later, Morgan Freeman is in another movie where producers are kind of like, I don't know if we should put this ending in that since seven with the head in the box and uh, 
you know, they decided, no, what we're going to do is we are going to do the ending. We're going to punish the audience even more. And it gives that move and that, and that, that movie has one of the more memorable endings that I've ever seen. I don't know if it's the best ending, you know, it's not a one that's going to make you feel good like Shawshank, but pretty wild that within a one year span, uh, you know, Morgan Freeman, uh, is the, the final character in these two movies that are wildly different, but had, uh, you know, possible, uh, questionable endings where the producer and the director didn't quite see eye to eye. Just thinking about that, like the, no, no, John Doe has the upper hand now. That gives me chills in the same way that Red finding the box that Andy left him and then they meet on the beach. Like it give, They both give me chills, but in vastly different ways. And if you're a fan of Seven, there's there's no doubt that we're going to eventually do that as one of our movies because we're, we're big fans and of Morgan Freeman, of course. Yeah. And we'll talk more about Morgan Freeman when we come back from a clip. We'll get into the cast of Shawshank Redemption. Got his fingers in a lot of pies from what I hear. Two years and a half of it. He got scams you haven't even dreamed of. Kickbacks on his kickbacks. It's a river of dirty money running through this place. Yeah, but the problem with having all that money is that sooner or later you're going to have to explain where it came from. Well, that's where I come in. I channel it, filter it, funnel it. Stocks, securities, tax-free municipals. I send that money out into the real world, and when it comes back... Cleaners of virgin's honey potter. Cleaner. By the time Norton retires, I'll have made him a millionaire. He ever catch on, though. He's gonna wind up in here wearing a number himself. Now, Red, I thought you had a little more faith in me than that. I know you're good, Andy, but all that paper leaves a trail. Now, anybody gets curious, FBI, IRS, whatever, it's gonna lead to somebody. Sure it is, but not to me, and certainly not to the warden. All right, who? Randall Stevens. Who? The silent, silent partner. He's the guilty one, Your Honor, the man with the bank accounts. That's where the filtering process starts. They trace anything. It's just going to lead to him. But who is he? He's a phantom, an apparition. Second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit. I conjured him out of thin air. He doesn't exist, except on paper. Andy, you can't just make a person up. I'm sure you can. If you know how the system works, where the cracks are. It's amazing what you can accomplish by mail. Mr. Stevens has a birth certificate, driver's license, social security number. You're shitting me. If they ever trace any of those accounts, they're going to wind up chasing a figment of my imagination. Well, I'll be damned. Did I say you were good? Shit, you are Rembrandt. You know, the funny thing is, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Ah! Well, as I was saying in the last discussion, the casting of this could have went a lot of different ways. Um, The script, when it went around to all the actors in Hollywood, um, everybody loved it. They thought that both of these roles were really, really extraordinary and really good uh, characters that they could sink their teeth into. And and I think really the best choice is Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. It's kind of really hard for me to picture other actors in this movie, but I can certainly see at the time Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, though both had been doing movies for at least a decade and had been 
you know, the lead character in a the movie, they weren't household names necessarily. I think this was the movie that really kind of blew both of them up, especially Morgan Freeman, who became like a huge, I mean, he, he's been so many hit movies uh, throughout the rest of the 90s. You know, we talked about it before, but Morgan Freeman really does give this movie a sense of tenderness and intelligence. I know a lot of that has to do with his narration, but um, just the way he walks, his smile is so captivating. And I think the gentle way that he deals with the characters, you know, he's always the voice of reason in this movie. Um, He's always the one that people sort of lean to, but he also is the character that has the movie on his shoulders. I mean, you can say that this is a movie about Andy Dufresne and Tim Robbins' character, and it certainly is. I mean, Red is telling the story of Andy. This is about him. But I do think that for the most part, watching this movie, this is Morgan Freeman's film. I mean, the movie, again, it rests on his shoulders. And prior to Shawshank, uh, Morgan Freeman had several roles where he played more gruff characters. And I'll talk a little bit about that in my pick of the week. I think it was this post- Shawshank Redemption era where Morgan Freeman started embodying these sort of wise, stoic characters who had a gentle nature about them, but they were very no-nonsense. And he does this so effortlessly. Um, I never feel like there's a scene where Morgan Freeman's trying to like go for an Oscar clip type performance. You know, it's always like very reeled in and very natural. And it's I think those are the type of performances that suck me into a movie. And they're one of the reasons why I love watching movies and love watching actors do these performances. And Lindsay, I don't know that I've ever met a bigger Tim Robbins fan than you. Uh, This was something that uh, I learned about you early on. Yeah, for some reason, I've always been drawn to this guy since as early as I can remember. I don't know if it was this or the Hudsucker Proxy that I saw first. It was probably Hudsucker Proxy, I'm sure, before I saw this. I don't know. I think it's something about his innocence and strength and even though his character in the Hudsucker Proxy and, and Shawshank are completely different, the quietness that he brings to some roles is often much more telling than most actors. He keeps being described as enigmatic by a lot of people who talk about this film that Andy's always holding on to a secret, and which is very true. But you don't know that for over two hours. It's no surprise that what convinced uh, Frank Darabont to take on Tim Robbins for this was Jacob's Ladder. And you and I, Justin, we both really enjoy that film. If anyone out there hasn't seen Jacob's Ladder, man, that is Tim Robbins in a whole other light that you don't get to see him in very often. That's just one of those movies that you don't often see ever. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about painful. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me that Tim Robbins is able to transform himself into these sort of quiet, meek-looking characters because he's like a really big dude. He's like six five, and he's taller than Bill Murray. I mean, he's he's kind of a big guy, yeah. you know. But he makes himself. He's able to like change his posturing and how Red describes of it looks like a, you know just a light wind could blow him over. And in, in the novella, wasn't he described as a small guy? He wasn't supposed to be super tall, right? Initially, physically, the the fit the description of what they were looking for but you know he really does like uh is able to emulate this sort of 
kind of person that seems like not intimidating whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I might be a really big Tim Robbins fan, but it was Morgan Freeman who pushed for him in this film. He was shown a list of actors and Tim Robbins was the one that he pointed out that that's the guy that I want to be paired with, which I mean, at the time to point out a guy that I'm sure that there were other names that were more famous than Tim Robbins, but to choose that man and say, that's my counterpart. That's the guy that I want to go on this journey with. And I believe that I will have the simpatico with. It's a gamble and also really brilliant. Now for a movie that has two main actors and and a story that's so deeply wound around these two central characters, uh, there's a hell of an ensemble cast here and so many great character actors that are filling the screen. And I think uh, Frank Darabont was very keen on making sure that there was some strong support, um, starting with um, the warden, Bob Gunton, who really has, I think, kind of solidified himself as being, he's always going to be, that's the warden from Shawshank. When you see him in any other movie, he really found a way to make this character so slimy, really evil because, you know, he uses the guise of religion and the Bible and he's, you know, he's such a contradiction and he just makes you so frustrated. Like you just want, there's very, very few villains in a movie where I'm just like, this guy needs to pay. And if like (laughs) he doesn't pay in this movie, like if this villain doesn't get stopped in this movie, I'm going to be really mad at this movie. And um, Bob Gutton like really just takes the character to a, new level in the novella um the warden is kind of nebbish and he seems kind of dorky and he doesn't really have that the fear and the tone that he inflects in this movie um especially the scene where uh he's sort of telling tim robin in the whole like nothing's gonna stop you know you're gonna do all this or i'll make your life a living hell i think the line uh you know i'll i'll rip you out of that one bunk hilton and cast you down with the sodomites it's like Good Lord. The next line after that sodomites line is pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, and it just, it's uh, kind of a chilling performance by Bob Gunton. I almost feel bad for the warden right at the very end when you know it's over for him. But you know what? No, I don't. I'm happy how that wraps up. And the next villain we have is Captain Hadley, played by Clancy Brown. And this guy is just as nasty as the warden if not even more so because he's the one that's actually beating a lot of these prisoners, sometimes under the cover of darkness, but he doesn't care. The fact that his character is a little bit more layered is interesting to me, though. We have a moment when Andy does a favor for him that he is just trying to get ahead and maybe get a leg up with this terrible prison guard, Hadley. And, you know, Hadley goes through with it. It's fine. But he's still a dick to all of these people. But one of Andy's main tormentors in prison, we see after he has beat the living hell out of Andy and he spends weeks in the infirmary, what happens when that guy gets out of the hole is Hadley is there and beats the living hell out of this guy to the point that he's taken out of prison and can't walk anymore. The fact that Hadley has this side of his character is peculiar in some ways to me that they keep it in the story. Like, why have this when we have so many other supporting characters who have 
depth to them, but in some ways they are somewhat one-dimensional because they fill out Red's idea of who who these people are and and what they're about. But this little tidbit about Hadley has always kind of nagged at me, like why he gives like 2% more of a care about Andy, not that much more, but he doesn't have to do that to that inmate Boggs. Uh, Frank Darabont does a good job of setting up how rough Hadley is whenever the it's the first night for all the new inmates and and the bigger guys kind of crying and Hadley beats him to death basically but not only when he's done he like puts out his hand and one of the underguards like hands him his hat to put back on you know and he kind of gives one final sort of threatening uh line to the rest of the inmates that are in their cells and just the way that scene's done it really kind of kicks in like how rough life is going to be for these inmates at Shawshank. Clancy Brown said in an interview that whenever he was researching the role and he was about to start filming. And there were several real prison guards working as extras on the film. And several of them said, hey, you know, would you want to talk? Would you want to hang out with one of these guys, you know, for a few days and kind of base something off of them or like, you know, you can get to know them because a lot of times actors do that. You know, we've talked about that before. They're going to go hang out with a doctor because they're playing a doctor. De Niro is going to drive a cab for three days and learn what that's about. But Clancy Brown actually said, I don't want to hang out with any (laughs) of these guys. Uh, You haven't read the script. This guy's like one of the worst, like uh, captain guards on the planet. He's like so evil. And you really don't want word to get out that uh, I base this off of any real person and like have your name come up uh, because this guy's like absolutely despicable. Now, one character that is the absolute opposite of Despicable is Brooks, played by James Whitmore. That guy, first of all, his character in the novella was nowhere near what it is in the film, and he does nothing but enrich the story and also really pulls some tears out of us during numerous points in the film. And when the movie becomes about him for about 10 minutes, it becomes a turning point for a lot of these inmates. He serves as the first one who goes on the outside after being incarcerated for so long and how difficult it is and how, oh my God, how he just wants to get back in. I mean, that just by itself isn't, is enough to rip your heart out of your chest. Yeah, I find the uh, Brooks segment of the movie probably where the movie slows down the most, but it is very effective and it does, like you said, you know, this is what all these guys have to face once they get out of prison. This is what Red might have to face when he gets out of prison. And the story of James Whitmore getting this uh, role is so sweet because Frank Darabont grew up watching James Whitmore in these sort of B movies uh, like them from the 50s as a kid, Frank Darabont loved James Whitmore. And so he said that it was like a true honor and blessing to be able to have this role for James Whitmore and get him in a movie. He said, even when they were on set that uh, he haven't had James Whitmore sign his poster of them. Frank Darabont, uh, before James Whitmore passed away, was able to use him one more time substantially in a role for his uh, film, The Majestic. One actor that is a welcomed injection of energy into the Shawshank Redemption is Gil Bellows, who plays Tommy. We've spent the whole movie with this core group of guys, and then some years later, in comes a new busload of inmates, 
one of which is Tommy, who is a young whippersnapper. He's been in and out of jail. He's a little hotshot rock and roller. Tommy's youthful spirit not only serves as a breath of fresh air, but also an extra plot motivator for what's going to happen to Andy. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a nice change in tone in the movie because we actually see Andy taking the Tommy character under his wing. We see this passage of time where now Tim Robbins' character isn't the new fish anymore. He's sort of riffing on some of the things that the guys who have been there longer than him said when he first got there. And he's kind of teaching the new guy the ways of how the prison works and, you know, how he should better himself, you know, get his GED, and he becomes Andy's personal project. I really do love the Gil Bellows character. To me, it also is like one of the more humorous parts in the movie because he comes in like a bulldozer of a character. And finally, William Sadler, who has been in just a gazillion movies. I mean, you've seen his face in so many things. Many times playing the villain, uh, one of my favorite roles of his is Trespass, a Walter Hill movie from the early 90s. But he has some of the funniest lines in this movie, and he plays that sort of southern fried good old boy character to a T. I think one of my favorite scenes of William Sadler's Haywood is whenever he, uh, uh, Andy has played the uh, opera music to everybody bef- before they shut him down. You know, he plays it over the loudspeaker and he does a week in the hole, but when he comes back, he's talking about, no, I kept the music in my head. But the first thing William Sadler says to him was, uh, yeah, you couldn't play any Hank Williams or anything like that when you were in there. And Tim Robbins also has a funny line of, uh, they busted the door down before I could start taking requests. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love, uh, later on we see him, everyone's reading books and stuff, and they've got William Sandler with headphones on listening to a Hank Williams tune. Yeah, Sadler's simpleness is helpful to the story, and his small parts that he does have are a much-needed break. So as beloved as this movie has become... Its uh, failure, I think, is equally notorious as its success. Uh, When Shawshank Redemption was released, it had a really tough go at the box office, though it had quite a bit of competition that year. 1994 was a huge year for all these blockbuster movies, including Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. It also had a really difficult title going for it. Like we said, you had two lead characters who weren't household names yet. They were notable actors, but... A lot of people weren't rushing out to the box office to see the new Morgan Freeman or the new Tim Robbins movie, as well as the fact that it's a prison drama that uh, is based off of a Stephen King movie that's not scary. There wasn't a lot to help promote this movie. kind of sank at the box office, though it was quietly nominated for seven Oscars. This movie is a little bit different than other movies we talk about that, like, bombed at the box office because most of those movies are cult movies that were kind of low budget and they sort of made their money and they found a small audience. Uh, This was a movie that totally bombed but then found a huge audience and has gone on to become one of the most well-known movies of all time. And that happened via video cassette. Once people started actually seeing the movie, especially once it hit video, Um, the studio knew that they had an excellent movie on their hands. I mean, this was a movie that they knew that just people didn't get to see in box office, but if people did see it, they'd actually love it. I think they produced the most amount of video cassettes to go out to the rental industry, something like 300, 400,000 
copies on videotape, and it became the highest rented video cassette of 1995. You know, Justin, did you see this in the theater? Uh, I did see this one in the theater, and okay. I'd like to say it's because I was like, no, I was so tuned into, you know, every <laughs> yeah. movie. But I worked in the movie theater in 1994, and I got free passes, and everything. So th- there was, I think that there's very few movies. Um, that I didn't see in theaters in 1994 other than maybe like Don Juan DeMarco. Now I'm just joking. I saw that one too. <laughs> I'm fairly positive I saw this on cable. I don't remember renting it. I don't remember anything like that. But seeing it on cable, I felt like it was on TV all the time and I think still is. I feel like you can catch it. I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, it being on TBS or TNT. And as it turns out, there was a reason for that because Turner Broadcasting had acquired uh, Castle Rock Entertainment and because Shawshank, it didn't perform that well at the box office. Although it was nominated for Oscars, it didn't receive any. So they could air and re-air this movie for fairly cheap but even in doing that it still became a phenomenon on television and people like me were watching this over and over again and I I mean like I said this was just on TV the other day it'll probably be on some channel this weekend too but in saying that I don't feel like it's played out and maybe that's because the length of the movie you can really draw this out and pack some commercials in but This movie feels like it is one of those that is going to be a forever staple on cable, but yet is still going to be a movie that you, if you've seen it, you remember it, but there's still a ton of people, I feel like, maybe just younger than us, that maybe haven't seen Shawshank before. Yeah, I feel like it's um, went up there among the list of movies that have become timeless, like uh, Christmas Story or Mm -hmm. It's a Wonderful Life, except for Shawshank works throughout the entire year. You're not just seeing it on TV during the holidays. So I guess there's only one thing left to do now, Lindsay. What's that? That's Get Busy Living or Get Busy Talking About Our Picks of the Week. I like that, Justin. I think that's a good way to live life. We'll come back with some final thoughts on Shawshank Redemption, but let's get into those. Lindsay, your pick of the week was The Player with Tim Robbins. What can you tell me about that? It's already been exposed by you, thank you, Justin, that I'm a fan of the guy, and pairing The Player with Shawshank ended up seeming like a no-brainer. I love Robbins in every form, but he's such a nice guy that seeing him play a bad dude is enthralling and freakish. It's impossible to look away. On top of that, I've mentioned in previous picks of the week, I adore insider-type movies about Hollywood, and I'm not alone. The player is placating to people exactly like me. You want the juicy gossip, the insider knowledge about how things really are. But remember, this is a movie. Is this really how Hollywood is, or are we seeing the Hollywood version? It's probably a little bit of both, but that's what makes this movie roll. We follow Tim Robbins as Griffin Mill, a mid-level Hollywood exec still climbing the ranks but well enough established in a position of power but could easily be unseated at any moment with one misstep. He says something like he hears thousands of story pitches every year but it really boils down to greenlighting 12 pictures in all reality. Quick aside... Isn't it crazy how things have changed from 1992 from when this movie came out to 2021, right? Because there's so much more greenlit content now. Anyway, 
the player sneakily evolves into a detective story as Griffin Moe becomes the repeated recipient of increasingly threatening postcards from a screenwriter he evidently thwarted or never looked at the person's script. Griffin has meetings, looks at scripts every single day, so pinpointing who the semi-stalker is is nearly impossible. Without notifying much of anyone, which doesn't seem very smart, Griffin tries to suss out who this mystery stalker or writer is, and after believing he's tracked the guy down, Griffin sneakily confronts him with a proposition, like, hey man, you stop with the postcards and I'll make you a picture deal, okay? When the agreement goes awry and a fight ensues, Griffin accidentally kills the writer in the middle of a vacant parking lot, and the writer is played by a fresh-faced Vincent D'Onofrio, which is only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to all of the famous faces in this movie, but um, I'll get to that in a second. The player intricately weaves together a story you weren't prepared for. At first, I find myself empathizing with Griffin. Even though he's a ruthless exec, he's still freaked out and being stalked. And how could an audience not ask, you know, what would you do if you were confronted with this situation? Would you turn yourself in or try to get away with murder? The movie's assumption and why a movie like this exists in general is because we're all voyeurs safely watching someone else make immorally wrong decisions, but you can't wait to see what happens. And writers are a dime a dozen, right? So it's kind of comical that this film somewhat says, yeah, sure, somebody's going to actually care about the murder of one Hollywood screenwriter. Next. The player doesn't impose morals onto the Hollywood machine. In fact, we come to see Griffin is quite amoral. Not only does he attempt to evade the two main cops who are convinced of his guilt, played by Whoopi Goldberg and Lyle Lovett, but he also makes a play for the murdered screenwriter's girlfriend. What a scumbucket. But I can't stop watching the adorable Tim Robbins be such a self-involved piece of crap with money. It's a dream to get to live in a world that is so foreign, and you suck up everything that's fed you by writer Michael Tolkien and director Robert Altman. Token's story is incredibly involved, snarky at times and pulling punches at Hollywood during other moments, but it's on the up and up on the intelligence level. For a two-hour movie, the player glides along and keeps you wondering if Griffin or his stalker will ever be caught. I won't ruin anything further with the plot, but this is an unassuming genre blender in the disguise of a Hollywood satire. The elements which lampoon Hollywood aren't overtly gutting. If anything, it's speaking some truths that Hollywood execs might play off as, you know, just business, but nothing wholly untruthful or inconceivable. It's not making any social commentary, but more a comment on how callous some higher-ups can be when trying to save their own ass. Being amoral is probably not something that's all too alien to the entertainment world. And Robert Altman is no stranger to the Hollywood machine by this point in his life. But this might leave some people watching it thinking, Eek, is this like a safe movie to do or will Hollywood crucify you for exposing a studio bigwig trying to get away with murder? But that's the beauty of this film. It's so tongue-in-cheek, but its satirical moments and endless supply of cameos offset any bad taste that could be left in your mouth about someone trying to get away with murder. Speaking of, the biggest thing anyone will talk about after watching this movie has got to be the insane cast and bit parts played by the biggest names in Hollywood, even today. I mean, just look it up. I've already mentioned a few, but follow that up with Gina Gershon, Bruce Willis, Julia Roberts, and that's just a few. There are also background pop-ins like Angelica Houston, John Cusack, Burt Reynolds. It's just impossible to turn away from the screen because you will undoubtedly miss a very, very familiar face. The biggest aspect a film nerd will notice about this movie is the eight-minute uncut opening tracking shot. Altman's decision to have this constant parade of industry business set in the outdoors of a Hollywood backlot was absolutely brilliant to open the movie with. 
I love seeing a great tracking shot in a movie, but they can be taken for granted because sometimes you don't even notice that they're happening. But truly, wow, this opening scene is worth every second of motion and dialogue. And that's another thing, dialogue. There is not one note that should be missed. Yes, sure, pay attention to the main action of the detective story unfolding before your eyes, but also the side and background characters. Everyone is employing their talents at the same caliber as if they were the main star of the picture. This was in 92, all before social media, and this was when dirty dealings could be gotten away with without the fear of being immediately dragged through the mud with a hidden cell phone video. In some ways, the player feels like it could have been much, much dirtier, but the movie holds its tongue, scraping just far enough under the surface that it almost cuts to the guts, but leaves you knowing that there's some truth behind this fictional tale. The film figured out a clever mixture of Hollywood fascination, possible truth, and the nonstop morally bankrupt core of the entertainment industry game, and wrapped it all up into one incredibly engrossing story. Even though Robbins plays a complete dirtbag wonderfully well and we're allowed to indulge ourselves in this fantasy of being on the inside, I'm so curious how people feel about watching the ending of this movie. I'm not going to say what happens, but it's so good and devoid of compassion. I love it, and I feel that there's no other ending that would be satisfying. You can tell that Tolkien and Altman had fun with this one, making you root for a total jerk. But what's the saying? Don't hate the player, hate the game. That phrase is so true for the player and well-deserving of the praise that it received upon its release. So check it out while you can, streaming right now on HBO Max. This is one of the many Altman films I really enjoy, and I do love his sense of uh, making everything so busy. He does that in so yeah. many movies. In this yeah. one, you really feel like you're taken through like what it would be like to sit down at a luncheon with all these different actors and producers and people that are running Hollywood. And uh, it's very witty but you know, and funny, but I also think that Tim Robbins does like ground the movie. It doesn't feel so yeah. it doesn't feel so over the top that um, you know, sometimes satire can like spin out of control and you kind of lose any sort of um, sympathy you could have for like a central character, but he holds it tight enough to where it doesn't uh, go off the rails. Yeah, the comedy is there, but it, it is certainly not just a it's not just a satire. Like you said, over the top, like I've talked about Soap Dish numerous times, that thing, that movie is wonderful and over the top and ridiculous. This is not that type of a satire. That was a great pick. I'm so happy that we got an Altman movie in. <laughs> All right, Justin, your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. You know, this is generally the kind of movie that I don't like, the biopic drama and I think in the wrong hands, this movie could have been pretty dull. But in the hands of director John G. Avidson, this movie is uh, somewhat of a great underdog story. Like many of his movies before, um, he handled the original Rocky, including Rocky V, and the entire Karate Kid trilogy. He just has a great knack for taking a very simple story about an underdog and really making them feel triumphant and really having that sort of Rocky type ending. Sure. Sometimes that can come off cheesy and parts of lean on me are kind of cheesy, but we're talking about a biopic that could have went in the wrong direction, but with Morgan Freeman playing the lead character, I think it really, really comes off as genuine and it's a lot of fun for a subject matter. That's a little bit depressing. The story revolves around Morgan Freeman's character named Joe Lewis Clark, or as some people called him, Crazy Joe. He may have even self-appointed himself that name. 
but he was a teacher in the 60s and he really had no time for bureaucracies. He didn't like to listen to school boards and eventually um, left uh, Eastside High School where, where he was teaching. And over the years, over the next 20 years, he ended up being a principal in elementary school, but Eastside High School was really starting to fall apart by the 80s. Um, there was drugs in the school, there was violence, and the state wanted to shut down the school unless it could see their students pass the minimum skills exam. And it just didn't seem like something that was possible. So the school board bucked up and they hired Crazy Joe to come in and clean up the school because they thought, number one, he's the only one that could do it. And number two, he's the only person that would want to do it. It's hard to believe that this is based on a true story. I had to look up and see how much of this movie was accurate because uh, even if uh, Crazy Joe did one-tenth of some of the things he pulled at Eastside High School in the 80s, a couple smartphones videotaping some of the things he did, he'd be thrown out of education for the rest of his life. His tactics were very controversial at the time, uh, starting with um, the first day on the job, expelling about a quarter of the school, calling everybody up who teachers had called uh, troublemakers or drug users or sellers of drugs. This upset many parents of some of the students who were kicked out. He also took to uh, keep the drug dealers out of the school. While school was in session, he would have them uh, chain up the doors, the exit doors with log chains, which is uh, highly illegal and uh, breaks many, many fire codes. And there's a good argument there to say you're putting the students in danger if there's a fire, but he's also keeping them safe from keeping out a lot of the students that were causing trouble and stopping the kids from learning. But the first half of the movie... I can't say that he's a character that you really grow to love. I mean, he pretty much uh, insults every teacher there. He fires a few of the teachers. Uh, he doesn't listen to any, anybody. He boasts. He brags. He yells at people. He shouts. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't appreciate anybody. And that really doesn't win him any fans. But he does slowly start to turn the school around and get the respect of the students and eventually get the respect of most of the teachers. It's a very tightly made movie with a lot of good drama and a great performance by Morgan Freeman. You can definitely see uh, why Morgan Freeman became known for big roles where he was an authoritative figure because here he really, really uh, takes on the movie and the movie rests on his shoulders and he really pulls it off. He's in nearly every scene. And though the movie does, like I said, it, it, it sort of curtails around some of these cheesy scenes that you see in every uh, movie about, you know, the inner city school that's having problems and someone who's trying to um, make a difference. But for the most part, it really stands the test of time, other than some of the uh, scenes where you'll just be standing there with your mouth open as he insults a freshman in front of the whole school and ridicules him for not pulling his pants up. But I highly recommend it. Lean on me with Morgan Freeman. You know, the 80s were a different time. And some would say, you know, uh, cleaning up a school like that, uh, that's what we need today. Some would say that. Yeah. And also a very early uh, role uh, of the Candyman's Tony Todd. He plays the uh, head of security at Eastside High. Oh, man. I don't remember a, that. And he's a Morgan Freeman's right-hand man. He doesn't have many lines, but he, he's got a good presence. Dang, I don't remember Tony Todd in that. That's awesome, though. Talk about a voice-off. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who's got the better voice there? A voice-off. <laughs> well, those are our picks of the week. Lean on me and the player. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. 
You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shocked? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. The most obvious way to link Billy to Shawshank is the film Cradle Will Rock, written, directed, and produced by Tim Robbins. But we won't be diving into the movie itself. However, it is criminally underseen, totally worth your time, and part of Bill's ever-expanding roles, which began in the late 90s. While promoting Rushmore, Bill made one of his regular appearances on old pal David Letterman's late-night show, and our boy was asked if he ever thought the Academy would recognize him for his impressive turn in Rushmore. Bill replied, Dave... I'll win an Oscar the same year I win the Heisman Trophy. And if they awarded the Heisman Trophy to golfers, sure, maybe. Uh, But not for our jokester, who was obviously playing off a compliment that was paid to him. A few days later, the script for Cradle Will Rock appeared on Bill's doorstep with a handwritten note from Tim Robbins saying, Bill, this is your Heisman. Yours, Tim Robbins. Adorable, right? So Tim Robbins. Bill felt this script was ambitious, seemingly another art film, and as Bill had been expanding his scope around this time, he decided to go for it. He wasn't doing it for the money, it's not like the hours were going to be a piece of cake, but he and a lot of other big names were roped in by Robbins because they all liked the idea of the film. Bill would later describe this film as, quote, the abyss without the budget. And if you've listened to our episode on the abyss, you understand exactly what he was saying and that it wasn't that easy. Robbins' story, which fictionalized true events occurring around the 1937 musical Cradle Will Rock, brought in historically relevant stories to make some social commentary on the time, like communism, the labor movement, socialism, ideas that were hot-button topics at the time. But our Murray moment lies within a particularly rough day shooting inside the mirror dressing room of Bill's vaudeville ventriloquist character and a continual string of botch takes like the camera breaking the fourth wall, meaning a crew member ends up reflected in a shot, a boom mic is exposed. The mirrors were a problem. And about an hour into this fiasco, Robbins was irritated. Some additional context for this story. At the time of shooting this scene, the Chicago Bulls were playing the Utah Jazz in the 1998 NBA Finals. Now, Bill's a sports fan. Everybody knows this, including Tim Robbins. And one of Robbins' bargaining chips in signing Bill to the film was saying, perhaps we can get a TV on the set for you. You know, so Bill wouldn't have to miss the big game. And when it came down to crunch time during filming, the scene wasn't working. Bill kept drifting off to watch the game while waiting for the crew to reset and calling back for another crack at it. You could do a take of a scene, Bill said. They'd cut for a technical reason. And while they'd roll back and forth trying to solve the problem, I could go watch the game. He'd even figured out the quickest route in and out of the dressing room and it happened so much. The mirrored room was causing such a problem that no one even noticed Bill kept drifting off so much. All this fun, Bill said, has taken us three and a half quarters of the game. Bill is now spending more time watching the game than being on the set. With five minutes left in the game, Robbins comes to where Bill's watching TV and decides to take in the last couple minutes. And Bill quips about this, that... Any mother with dinner on the table knows how long the last five minutes of an NBA game can last. Did you guess 35 minutes? The clock can stop for any moment, for any type of infraction or hell, even a commercial break. The game was down to one minute and 19 seconds. The Bulls are ahead by just one point. Then, 
commercial break. Timeouts. Bill is very aware of Robbins's tiny, frustrated, grunting sounds and seeing the man's jaw tighten. He knows he's completely ever regretting suggesting that Bill have a TV on set. As the game nears a conclusion, the crew was reset and ready. The ending of the game was imminent. And then overtime. Yep, overtime. Bill saw the look on Robin's face. He knew. Tim was in a lot of pain, so we tried to work during the overtime, Bill continued. But I was very bad, and I walked to the TV at the end of each take. They should have put a leash on me. I couldn't help myself. And as Bill had yet again pulled himself away from the set, he felt the angry steps of his six-foot-four director approaching, a warning sound of an authority figure you best heed or else. Tim came over and quickly snapped off the TV completely. Bill said a million thoughts went through his head like, Oh, no, you didn't. You're kidding, aren't you? There's only two minutes left. But what came out was, Oh, Tim, you were doing so well. The scene wrapped up quickly after they got back on track, and Bill appreciated Robin's dedication to completing it, letting him get away with misbehaving. But ultimately, Tim put his foot down. These are just the frustrations that can happen on set. They're still good buddies, and Bill even tried to make up to Robbins by inviting him out for a round of golf later together. Movie directors work so much harder than actors, it's no wonder they get paid less, Bill jokingly said of Robbins' plight in dealing with him. If you ever wonder how Bill can be on set, this is the epitome of him being a bad kid. But you know, as long as everyone's an adult, you work through this kind of thing and move on. But it still makes for a damn funny story. I love that you're able to get a credible rock uh, <laughs> story in there because I um, I was thinking about doing that as my pick of the week. Oh yeah, before I chose Lean on Me, and that uh, that's a really good movie. Uh, Tim Tim Robbins is actually a pretty good director. Has he done like three or four mm-hmm. movies as a director? Yeah, I like that movie too, and it I still think it is one that it's it's silly that it's not been seen more that more people don't talk about it. It's a really good movie. I'm gonna have to revisit that one. It's been it's probably been a good 10 years since I watched that. Yeah. I think that's one poster that we have for sale on our website at Cradle oh, Rock. Nice plug there. Yeah. Well, thanks for that Murray moment. Of course, it's always. Did you have any final thoughts before we wrap things up on the Shawshank Redemption? You know, there is one thing. Early on in the film, we see Andy etching his name into the wall. And that scene is played out again um, when the big reveal happens that Andy had a plan the whole time to escape from prison. Originally, the first time that that scene is shown, you see Andy etching and a whole chunk of the wall falls out. And that was originally how it was shot to keep it in the beginning part of the film. And the editor decided to hold that back, us seeing a giant chunk of the wall fall out in the beginning and hold that until the big reveal at the end of the film. So we're not even thinking that it's a possibility that Andy can escape. This is more him etching his name into the wall. It is a sign of permanence. He's not leaving. But choosing to hold that little piece of information until the end, I mean, it makes such a giant difference. Yeah, I think it makes such a huge difference because I think tonally, too, there'd be a shift in this movie is from Red's perspective. Yeah, and so yeah. most of the time we see Andy, even when he's by himself, Red is describing something that happened mm-hmm. from you know the past, like the stories told from the future. And seeing Andy by himself in a cell going beyond etching his name, but seeing all that stuff crumble and he gets the idea to start tunneling, it seems like it kind of 
not only ruins the surprise later, that would only really, it's a surprise on a first time watch. I mean, obviously after you see sure. the movie multiple times, it's no longer a surprise, but again, it changes that perspective. Like we're, we're seeing Andy doing something by himself that Red is supposed to be unaware of exactly, you know, and he's not narrating at that point yeah, um, or that, that portion of, of this, that scene with Andy. So I think it was a good choice. Um, definitely would have changed the movie. And I like that there's a secret that, you know, they just did the cut right there. He just makes the A and then just the editor was like, we're just going to stop right there, go yeah. to the next scene. We won't show the wall crumble. And I think it's a better movie for it. There's no way you couldn't think, oh, I've got an escape route. And you're you're giving away your ending. You're blowing your ending uh, right there at the beginning. Yeah. Any final thoughts for you, Justin? Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing, um, we didn't mention the music earlier, mm. uh, the score by Thomas Newman, who also did the music for The Player. That's right. Yeah. And he's done a ton of movies, but um, I really love the score to this because I think this is a movie where you could very easily have the music tell you how you're supposed to feel emotionally <laughs> and what's going on. And I think it keeps it light and airy in the beginning. It's almost like uh, this sort of drifting light music and it doesn't do the sort of like, nah, 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 villain, yeah. here comes no, the villain no, no. type. You know, it, it's almost like you don't really, unless you're really focusing on it, you don't notice it. But once you do, you're like, man, this is a really beautiful uh, score for the whole movie and um, really great choice. And uh, man, he's done so many uh fantastic uh, scores for so many great films the score does the thing that all great film scores do and that is it captures the feeling of the film and just assists you through it it provides that feeling of defiance and 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 freedom like there's a a sense of inspiration at times but it's not overwhelming and it's not and even scores can be pandering or cheap in some ways to like really draw out emotions in in the lamest way. This one, yeah, it it just guides you through it, but it assists and enhances what is already happening in the story. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our episode on Shawshank Redemption. Uh, we hope that you all have had a good year, and we're going to take a much needed break. Um, we're going to watch a lot of movies we're going to relax for a little bit and we're going to be back on what <laughs> um i watch a lot of movies and i feel like i'm analyzing all the time and i don't know if i'm ever really relaxed unless it's something like monster in law yeah you know well i'm saying that we're relaxing but we both know that we never do that but we're going to try. We're going to try our best. Yeah, we're going to gonna try. We're going to try our best to relax. At least at least like yeah. 2 days. Yeah. So two we days. won't uh, we won't be back until January 18th and we'll be ringing in the new year with Ghost. Whew. When's the last time you guys have seen Ghost? Well, you have plenty of time to uh, watch it before the next episode comes out. So please stick with us and uh, we have plenty of episodes archived if you want to listen in the meantime you can catch old episodes on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com a lot of our episodes are also on all your platforms you can catch them there and if you want to please do follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We also have a YouTube channel at Don't Push Pause Podcast which also has all of our old episodes. And if you want to contact us for any reason whatsoever, say hi, tell us how your holidays are doing, what movies you're watching, you can reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Have a happy new year.